in the third paragraph of chapter 4 is, is a bridge. We looked last week on the subject of natural law. That law which is indelibly, by creative act, written on the hearts of men. Uh, the Apostle Paul refers to this in specifically in Romans 2. We, we won't turn there again, but we looked at that last week. But even, even the consciences of Gentiles, when they do what the law requires, even though they don't have a written law, they bear testimony to the fact that that natural law, the moral law, is in fact written on their hearts. And we saw last week that the moral law is summarized. It's encoded in ten words or ten commands that were given on Sinai. So we see in Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue is the summary of that natural law or moral law. We're using those terms interchangeably. But we find something in, in chapter 4, in the third paragraph, we, we begin with this statement, besides the law written in their hearts. So it acknowledges what was articulated in paragraph 2, there is a law written on the heart of every man, every man, woman, and child has the law of God written on their hearts. We said last week, there's really no such thing as an atheist. There are those who suppress that truth and unrighteousness, but it doesn't mean that, the, that it isn't there. It doesn't mean that God has not encoded on the heart of every man the moral law. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help as we look at this distinction here between natural law and what we'll call positive law. Natural law and positive law. We need the Lord's help. We need his Spirit's help to make these, these kinds of distinctions according to the Scriptures. So let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your revelation to us, that you've caused your word to be written down, that we can study it, and, and by your Spirit's help we can understand it. Uh, we thank you that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ a full, perfect, complete, sufficient revelation of our triune God. And we are grateful for him. We're grateful for this, this confession of faith that we have the opportunity to study. We pray that it will, will direct us back to your word, ground us there, cause us to rejoice in the authority, the sufficiency, the inerrancy of your, your word and it alone. We thank you in Christ. Amen. Let's read together <clears throat> from the book of Genesis. I'm going to take you to a couple couple of texts. I'm going to do this a little bit backwards. Rather than reading the text of the confession and then reading the footnotes, I'm going to read the footnotes first. And so we have an idea of where these, these ideas are coming from. And then we'll read paragraph three in the confession. So first in Genesis 2. In Genesis chapter 2, <clears throat> verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden. Notice, this was not Adam's original place of residence. God created Adam and then put him in the garden to work it and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, as an act of creation... When God made man, when God made Adam, Adam would have already known, because of the works of the law written on his heart, that it would be wrong to worship another God. That it would be wrong to steal or to kill unjustly or to commit adultery or, or so on. 
But would Adam have known by nature which tree he could eat of and which he could not? No. Because the tree itself, it was not anything inherently moral or immoral, good or evil, wrong or right, in the tree. And so God gives a positive command. Now turn back to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. So we see this a positive command stated both negatively and positively. Positively, you may eat freely of every tree in the garden. But of this one tree in the midst of the garden, you shall not eat. So that's the command. And then a sanction given on top of that command, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Well, then in Genesis chapter 1, beginning of verse 26, and then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And, God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good, and there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So the first thing I want to notice here in in chapter 3 of our, or paragraph 3 in our confession, chapter 4, here's the text. It says, besides the law written in their hearts, they received a command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which, while they kept, they were happy in their communion with God and had dominion over the creatures. The first thing we want to notice is the distinction between natural law and positive law. And hopefully we've already seen in Genesis, for example, some of those distinctions beginning to emerge. What is the difference between natural law or moral law, and we can use those terms interchangeably, and positive law? The confession begins with that phrase, besides the law, written in their heart. And so when we use that kind of language, even in in common speech, when we have that kind of phrase, besides something, you know, well, besides uh, the the entree, when you come to our house for dinner, we will also have this. You also have dessert, or we'll also have coffee or something else. We're saying it's an addition to. And so in addition to that positive or that natural law, there is also a positive law. They received a command. And so we need to just define what, what we mean by this. Jim Renahan, I think, gives a helpful definition. And he's, he's, it's a composite of Mueller's Dictionary of Latin and Greek Theological Terms. Uh, I mentioned that resource to you. Renahan summarizes it this way. What is positive law? It is an added command given by revelation differing from moral or natural law in that knowledge of it will only come externally by means of divine disclosure. For example, circumcision and baptism are both positive laws. 
They are appropriately part of worship associated with specific covenants and would be unknown apart from divine revelation. Any positive law is a command given by God for a particular purpose and or time. It requires obedience beyond what is required in natural or moral law. So you see, positive law is something that's not uh, deduced from nature. It's not, it's not something that's inherent to man. It, has to, it depends upon revelation of some kind. And, and throughout the scriptures, we see that God has revealed himself in various ways. The first three verses, for example, of the, of the, the, of the epistle to the Hebrews makes that plain, that God has revealed himself in various ways. But now, in these last days, he has revealed himself in and through his Son. Those, and then we confess that those other ways of God revealing himself to man have ceased. There are no more dreams or visions or immediate words from God. God does not speak to you audibly. God does not, not reveal himself to you outside of his word and spirit. And so these positive laws are dependent upon some manner of direct revelation. And of course, in our day, with a closed canon, the only means of, achieve, of, of attaining positive law from God is by means of his word. Let's look back in our confession to chapter 1, just a refresher of what we confess about the doctrine of the scriptures themselves. <clears throat> in paragraph 1 of chapter 1, we confess that the Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Listen to the next phrase. Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men inexcusable, yet they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and his will which is necessary unto salvation. So in other words, natural law is sufficient to, to communicate to us that there is a God and we owe him worship. But it is not sufficient to communicate to us how we are to worship him or how we can be reconciled to him through the Lord Jesus Christ. So natural revelation is not sufficient. So anyone who says, well, I, I, I draw close to God by going up on a mountaintop and, and observing the sunset. Or I go out at night and I look at the stars in the, in the, in the night sky in the middle, of the middle of the desert, and I draw near to God that way. Well, there's only so much that you can do. You can know from the heavens that there is a God, but you cannot be reconciled to him through that means. Natural revelation will never be sufficient for that. God has not designed it to be sufficient for that. Then in paragraph 6 in the same chapter, we confess the following. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down or necessarily contained in the Holy Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelation of the Spirit or traditions of men. Nevertheless, we acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the Word and that there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and government of the church common to human actions and societies which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence according to the general rules of the word which are always to be 
observed. And as we've looked at this already, there are certain circumstances of worship. For example, what time do we meet? Do we use chairs or pews? Do we have a microphone or do I just have to shout louder? We, we have those kinds of, of circumstances that are to be governed by the light of nature and Christian prudence and the general rules of the Word of God. But we are dependent upon special revelation to tell us what elements of worship. What are we to do when we come to worship? In fact, even the question of when do we come to worship is a matter of special revelation. Now, we've looked backwards in the confession. Let's look forward and see how this doctrine or this distinction between natural revelation or natural law and special revelation. How does this work out? Or, or, or more, more specifically, the relationship between natural law and positive law. In chapter 19, this is the chapter entitled, Of the Law of God. And what we'll find in, this is getting way ahead of ourselves in terms of the sequence of our study, but, but you can see already, as we read through this, all of the Reformed churches, all of the Reformed confessions, confessed very similar things, almost exactly the same thing with respect to the law of God. Um, that has been changed radically with the rise of dispensationalism and New Covenant theology and other things. But whether you were Baptist or Presbyterian or Congregational at the time of the Reformation, you all confess the same thing about the law of God. Listen to this. God gave to Adam, paragraph 1, a law of universal obedience written in his heart. Now, what would be another word, another phrase to describe that? God gave to Adam a law of universal obedience written in his heart. What is that? Natural law. And a particular precept of not eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What is that? Positive law. By which he bound him and all his posterity to personal, entire, exact, and perpetual obedience. He promised life upon the fulfilling and threatened death upon the breach of it and endued him, that is Adam, with power and ability to keep it. So we have this distinction between natural law and positive law. Then in paragraph 2, the same law that was first written in the heart of man continued to be a perfect rule of righteousness after the fall and was delivered by God upon Mount Sinai in ten commandments and written in two tables, the first four containing our duty towards God and the other six our duty toward man. So natural law is written on the heart of man and encoded in the Ten Commandments, written down in the Ten Commandments. Then paragraph 3, here we see the same phrase that we saw in chapter 4, paragraph 3, besides this law. In other words, in addition to that one, which was indelibly written on the heart of man, there is also another law. So besides this law, commonly called moral or natural, God was pleased to give to the people of Israel ceremonial laws containing several typical ordinances, partly of worship, prefiguring Christ, his graces, actions, sufferings, and benefits, and partly holding forth, forth diverse instructions of moral duties, all which ceremonial laws being appointed only to the time of Reformation are, by Jesus Christ, the true Messiah and only lawgiver, who was furnished with power from the Father for that end, abrogated and taken away. So in other words, these ceremonial laws are positive laws. 
But what do we learn about the nature of positive law? It's temporary. It's temporary, and it's conditioned according to a particular covenant. So these ceremonial laws are no longer in effect. In fact, the confession is explicit. They were abrogated and taken away by Christ, which is the reason we don't have an altar here on which we, we slaughter bulls and goats. Not once have you ever been asked to bring two doves as a, as a peace offering or a grain offering or, or a fragrant offering of any kind. Then the next paragraph, still in chapter 19, to them also, this is, this is to, to Adam and Eve, he gave, or to the, I'm sorry, to the Jewish people, he gave sundry judicial laws, which expired together with the state of that people. So you see the other temporary nature of that. The judicial laws, these are the laws governing Israel as a nation state, the legal governance of, of Israel. Not obliging any now by virtue of that institution, their general equity only, being of moral use. And we don't have time today to, to do a full exposition of that, but this is, as, as you, you hear more and more, particularly if you're on social media at all, in, in the reformed social media world, this, these, these ideas of theonomy are, are making significant inroads, um, and, and they're, they, they are an aberrant understanding of the law. The law of God, or, well, I should say this, they don't make the distinctions properly or sufficiently between moral law and positive law. Positive law is temporary, and positive law is associated only with the covenant under which it was given. Now, we can think about this because the, the, the things themselves that God either prescribes or proscribes, what he commends or forbids, we see that with respect to the ceremonial laws, there was nothing good or evil in the things themselves. So in the garden, was one tree inherently evil and another inherently good? No, God had already pronounced very, a very good declaration upon his whole creation, including the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What made that tree morally off limits for Adam? God's positive law. Nothing inherent in the tree itself. These were not matters of, these were matters of just application of God's positive law. These were not matters of moral law. Positive law depends upon God's command or prohibition to make a thing either good or evil. Now let's, let's think about some examples of this from the scriptures. In, in Leviticus 18, there is a declaration from Moses that God was going to give the land, the promised land, to his people, and he was going to drive out the inhabitants, and particularly the Canaanites. And the first, the first 20 some odd verses of Leviticus 18 describes in detail various immoralities that God is telling, telling his people when you go into the land, don't do these things as your neighbors have done. So, for example, he denounces sexual immorality of all kinds, including homosexuality, incest, bestiality. He condemns their child sacrifice. He condemns their idolatry. And then listen to Leviticus 18, verse 24. Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things, for by all these 
The nations I am driving out before you have become unclean, and the land became unclean, so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules, and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For the people of the land who were before you did all these abominations, so that the land became unclean, lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean, as it vomited out the nation that was before you. Now, ask yourself from this text. God is saying to his people, I'm going to give you the land, and we're going to, you're going to dispossess, you're going to drive out or utterly destroy the Canaanites there. And God pronounces a condemnation. It says it's the land itself that has vomited the Canaanites out. Why? For what reason did God declare the Canaanites unfit to inhabit the land? Was it for violation of moral law or positive law? Moral law. Things like the Seventh Commandment, the Sixth Commandment, the Fifth Commandment, and certainly First, Second, Third, and Fourth. Run down the list, you would get 10 out of 10. They did not, God did not condemn the Canaanites because they failed to circumcise their sons on the eighth day. That was a positive law given to Israel. God did not condemn the Canaanites for their failure to do that. God did not condemn the Canaanites for failing to keep the Passover. He did not condemn the Canaanites for not offering the right sacrifice at the right time. He did not condemn the Canaanites for not worshiping in the place that God had commanded them to worship. Why? All of those were positive laws that applied only to God's people. And, we, and, and it's still the case. It, it is still exactly the same way. There are, all, there are positive laws that pertain to a particular covenant, and they are not universally binding. So, for example, we've looked a couple of different times at Romans chapter 1. And God pronounces a condemnation there through the Apostle Paul. Says, in fact, he declares that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness. Now, the unrighteousness that follows, are those violations of the moral law or positive law? Moral. What's the condemnation? What's the chief condemnation that Paul articulates there in Romans chapter 1 against, against man? Right. They did not honor him as God. They did not worship him as creator. Those are first and second and third commandment issues, aren't they? They worship the creature rather than the creator. That's a third commandment issue, isn't it? The second commandment issue. Nowhere in Romans 1 is God condemning the Gentiles because they haven't been baptized. He's not condemning them because they're not keeping the Lord's Supper properly. You see, it's, it's, this is a matter of moral law, not positive law. No condemnation is, is found even today as we look out at our neighbors, the ones who are lost and dying and on their way to hell. God is not condemning them to hell because they haven't been baptized. That's a positive law given to God's people. He's not condemning them because they're not observing the Lord's Supper as they ought to. Those are, those are ordinances given to the church. 
he's not condemning them to hell because they're they're not uh, participating in the works of evangelism and carrying out the Great Commission. Those are positive laws given to God's people. God holds only his people guilty for violating those positive things. And so we have to make a distinction in our mind between that which is moral and universally binding and that which is a positive law that's bound only upon God's people. Now, let's think next, because our our confession does make it clear. Let's turn back now to chapter 4. As we continue looking at this, at this paragraph, there is a, a duty here to worship. And that duty to worship is tied to positive law, not natural law. So back to paragraph 3. Besides the law written in their hearts, they received, this is Adam and Eve, received a command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which, while they kept, they were happy in their communion with God and had dominion over the creatures. See, the writers of our confession rightly, from the scriptures, make a connection between obeying God's positive law and communion with him or true worship of him. We we cannot worship God according to our own designs. And and we can prove that biblically. We know the fall happens in chapter 3. What happens in chapter 4 of Genesis? Yes, first sibling rivalry, and that was over what issue? Worship. Cain brings an offering that is unacceptable to God. Abel brings an acceptable sacrifice. And Cain becomes angry because the Lord had received his brother's sacrifice and did not receive his. And this was not some arbitrary or capricious act of God. God had given positive law to his people about how he was to be worshipped. And Cain didn't obey that. And Abel did. And so God's accepted Abel's offering because it was given according to his positive law. He rejected Cain's offering because it was not given according to his positive law. Now, again, we're going to kind of keep going back and forth in our confession because I want you to to see this idea of reading it, as we've said before, sideways. So if you turn back over, not to chapter 19 this time, but a little further ahead, chapter 22. This is of religious worship and the Sabbath day. We're considering here the relationship of positive law to worship. Paragraph 1, the light of nature shows that there is a God who hath lordship and sovereignty over all, is just, good, and doth good to all, and is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served with all the heart and all the soul and with all the might. All of those things can be discerned by means of natural law. Not only that there is a God, but that he is worthy of worship, and that this God is to be feared, loved, praised, that he is a good, just, and God who does good to all. Then we see but. But the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself. This is, this is the concept of positive law and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshipped according to the imagination and devices of men, nor the suggestions of Satan, 
under any visible representations or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. So this is a reference not only to positive law, but with respect to worship. What's the term that we use to describe our worship that is bounded by what God reveals? Regulative principle. This is exactly right, the regulative principle. It means it's regulated by God's positive law. Has he given us a positive command to do something in worship? Then we ought to do that. If he has not given us a positive command, then we ought not to do that in worship. We can ask Cain about that. Or we could ask Nadab and Abihu, who offered strange fire on the altar. They offered an incense that was not authorized by God. They thought, this would be really cool. We'll worship God in this way. We've got this, this new offering we want to bring, and God struck them dead because God had not commanded to be worshipped in that way. Then in paragraph 2, still in chapter 22, religious worship is to be given to God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to him alone. Now, can that be discerned by natural law? That God is to be worshipped as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? No. We cannot discern from nature that God is triune. We cannot discern the, the, the persons of the Godhead. That's dependent upon special revelation. We are not to worship angels, saints, or any other creatures. And since the fall, not without a mediator, nor in the mediation of any other but Christ alone. We would have no way from natural revelation alone, from natural law alone, to discern that we, that we must have a mediator, that we must have someone to stand between us, we might be able to well. We might be able to discern that we need a mediator, but we would not be able to discern that is the Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect, sinless, truly God, truly man. Nehemiah Cox makes this statement regarding this relationship between positive law and worship. I think this is helpful. In matters of positive right, we can have no warrant for our practice, but from a positive precept. For things of this kind fall not within the compass of common light or general principles of natural religion, but have their origin from a particular, distinct, and independent will of the lawgiver. And therefore, inferences built upon general notions may soon lead us into mistakes about them. If upon such inferences we form a rule to over... To, I'm sorry, back up. If, if upon such inferences we form a rule to ourselves of a larger extent than the express words of the institution do warrant. So in other words, when it comes to worship, we are dependent upon positive law, positive precept, not from inferences. We don't, for example, infer from the scriptures that we ought to dance before the Lord, or that we infer from the scriptures that we ought to have icons that we kiss and bow down to. Only those things which are positively given to God's people as a practice are, are, are what we are bound to do, and no other thing are we able to do. And the scriptures, of course, make it clear that worship is a very serious matter. We were created worship God. We were created, as we looked in the last two weeks, we were created to be in communion with God, holy and happy. And yet because of the fall, because of the rebellion of man, Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden. And, and, and we, like they, 
dare not add or take away from any positive laws regarding worship. It's not right for us to hold on to ordinances of worship, for example, that God gave to a previous people under a previous covenant. So, for example, animal sacrifice, not only is it no longer necessary, but it would be offensive to God. If we were to come in this Lord's Day or next or any other and say, we're going to slaughter a bull today for the atonement of God's people, See, under a positive law, under the Old Covenant, that was not only acceptable but required, wasn't it? What would happen now if we did that? It would be blasphemy, wouldn't it? It would be blasphemy. What was once good and right and necessary for worship, now under a new covenant, is not necessary. It's not allowed. In fact, it's offensive to God. See, Positive law is very important. It's unique. It's temporary. It's associated with a particular covenant. So, for example, in Galatians 5, Paul's dealing with the issue of circumcision. Circumcision was associated with what covenant? Initially the Abrahamic, wasn't it? And, and, and so the question then comes, as people are coming to faith in Christ, Both Jew and Gentile are coming to faith in Christ. And the question then comes up, what do you have to do to be a faithful Christian? And there was a party known as the Judaizers, the circumcision party, that said in order to become a Christian, to go to their Gentile neighbors, okay, we will grant that there are Gentiles being saved, but in order to be truly right with God, what you have to do first is become a Jew, which means you have to be circumcised and you have to keep the law the ceremonial, and the judicial laws. Then you may be right with God. And Paul says this in Galatians 5, he says, I say to you, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Now, he's not saying that as a, you know, as a, as a merely a medical matter, someone who's been circumcised has now obligated to keep the whole law. That's not Paul's point. He's saying that anyone who says, I accept the premise that I have to be circumcised, I have to become a Jew, I have to be Torah compliant in order to be a faithful Christian. Paul says if you take that on, now you've taken an obligation to keep the whole law. What has Paul said? If you want circumcision, you've got to take the whole package, which means you're back to the covenant of works. The same law that Adam couldn't keep, or, well, didn't keep, he could have. You and I cannot keep it. So Paul said, if you want, if you want that circumcision, which is a positive law for another covenant, if you want to bring that forward into the new covenant, then you have to take the whole package. You see, Paul's making, he's saying you can't mix and mingle God's covenants. The Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs, he has a wonderful book called Gospel Worship. He's got a couple of wonderful books. One of them in particular is called Gospel Worship. And in typical Puritan fashion, he's working through 
this issue of the regulative principle. He's working through the issue of the means of grace. What has God given positively to his people as commands? And what are the consequences for his people if we disobey those? And so he, he in classic Puritan fashion, he deals with objections. It's almost like he imagines someone in the crowd saying, yeah, but what about this? You ever had kids do that? Any honest grown-up will say they've done that too, right? Well, he asked this question. Cannot we sit at home and read a, read a sermon? He's dealing with the command that we are to go gather publicly worship and, and submit ourselves to the ordinance, the command, the positive law of listening to preaching. And he says, well, can't we just stay at home and read a sermon? Or we could translate this or maybe update this. Why can't we just stay at home and watch a sermon on YouTube, or listen to a really good sermon on Sermon Audio. Isn't that the same thing? Listen to his answer. It's very interesting. He uses the Old Testament illustration. He says, but, but has God appointed that, meaning to read a sermon, or we could say watch a YouTube video or something else, your favorite podcast or, or a small group discussion instead, or your men's gathering or your ladies' gathering or whatever it is. We, could, we want to do that instead of attending to the public means of grace. And he says, but has God appointed that, these other things, to be the great ordinance for converting and edifying of souls in the way of eternal life? True, there is some use for it. But the great ordinance is the preaching of the word. Faith comes from hearing, the scriptures say, and never by reading. So that even though when you come to hear, you do not hear that which you did not hear before, yet you come to attend upon this ordinance for the conveyance of some spiritual good that it may be, has not been conveyed before, or in a further degree that has been conveyed before. Because in other words, you've probably heard this text before. You've read this text of Scripture before. This, this morning, for example, in our, in our Lord's Day worship, I'll be covering the sermon of, of the parable of the sower. You've all heard that. You've all read it. Before I even read the text, you will be able to tell me, probably from your heart, what the four soils represent. And so the argument could be, well, I've heard this before. I'll go on to something different or better. And he says, and so, Burroughs continues, you should come to hear the word with your hearts possessed with that meditation that it is the word of God and the great ordinance that God has appointed for the conveyance of spiritual good to you. So I come in obedience to God. And in this, I testify my respect to God. And I will attend upon this ordinance of his for the conveyance of spiritual good to me. And although I may think that this or the other means may do the deed as well, yet because God has appointed this to be his ordinance, therefore, in obedience to him, I will attend upon this means rather than upon the other means. His quote continues, and I'll do it in just a moment, but notice what he's saying. It's not that one thing is inherently morally good and another thing is inherently morally evil. It's because God has commanded one and has not commanded another. God has commanded us to gather as, as his people, and submit ourselves to his ordinances, including the public preaching of his word. Is watching a sermon on, on YouTube evil or morally unsound? No. Not at all. Reading a good sermon, listening to a good podcast, all those things can be good. But God hasn't commanded those. He hasn't given them as a matter of positive law for our spiritual good. Burroughs continues. Here's the, the Old Testament illustration that I thought was, was helpful. He says, as you know, Naaman 
thought the other waters would have been as good as the waters of Jordan to have healed him. Remember Naaman, the pagan king who had leprosy? And he appealed to God through his prophet. Let me be healed. And remember he told him to go bathe in the waters of the Jordan. And Naaman bristled at the idea. Why would I do that? Rivers here are better than the Jordan. But if God appointed the waters of Jordan to heal him rather than the other waters, then he must wash there. There is no question that the other waters had as much natural virtue in them, but because the waters of Jordan were the ordinance that God had appointed to cure his leprosy with, he must come and wash into those waters rather than any other. So, because the preaching of the word is the great ordinance that God has appointed to convey himself by, therefore he requires that you should show your respect to him so far as to attend upon him in that ordinance. You understand the illustration? One river is full of H2O. The other river is full of H2O. There's nothing inherent in one water over the other that would cure leprosy, is it? And yet God has said, this one will do you good. These other things will do you no good. Positive law. Positive law. Now, it doesn't mean from that point on, forever and ever, that washing in the Jordan is somehow better. You know, that being baptized in the Jordan River is somehow better than, more sufficient than, or more efficacious than being baptized in our little trough here, for example, or any other place. These categories of moral and positive law are important, aren't they? They really help us think through some things. Um, understanding the role of positive law and the relationship between positive law and God's covenants with his people are, are, are very critical. Now, there's an interesting thing. is, is we, We've sought to point out, as we go through this study, differences between, for example, the Baptist Confession, the Westminster Confession, and the Savoy. The, the words used in the two confessions are almost identical. There is no substantial difference in the doctrines on this matter with respect to natural law and positive law. But there is a stylistic difference. In the Westminster Confession, chapter 4 only has two paragraphs. Ours has three. So what do the Baptists add? It's a trick question. They didn't add anything. They split the second paragraph in two. They split it. Um, now, the question is, why? Well, part of it was an editorial decision. We don't know exactly why. Because the words stayed the same. Uh, a couple, couple little minor word tweaks, but they're not, they're not doctrinally substantial. But they split, and they wanted to further the distinction between positive law and moral law, or natural law and, and positive law. So they even split them into two separate paragraphs. And it's kind of like when you, you're training a, a, a young person to write an essay. You know, your, your paragraphs, each new paragraph should begin a new thought, right? So they want this to be a new thought. And so they began it with besides the law written on their hearts. Now, what's happening here, though, is, is theologically significant. Uh, Dr. Renahan asserts that it's likely that they made this change to assert a distinction between positive and natural law because later in the confession, beginning in chapter 7, when we look at the covenants, it becomes important. And then especially when we look forward to the ordinances of baptism, it becomes important. Is it positive law or natural law? Or, I'm sorry, is it, yeah, is it positive law or natural law? Is it a moral law or a positive law? Under the covenant of grace, the question of who is to be baptized. 
with a positive law from the scriptures, and, and most Presbyterians will admit this, is that there is no positive law in all the New Testament to baptize infants. Nowhere. It's inferred. And so the Baptists are making that distinction that on something like an, an, a, an element of worship, we don't get those by inference. We get them by means of positive law. So they're already beginning to plant something here in chapter 4 that will germinate and come to full fruit later in the confession. But just know that that, that issue, um, not only of baptism, but of the, the nature of the church, later on the question of who is a church member? Who's a church member? And the, the answer from the Baptists is those who have been spiritually born again, who have confessed faith, and who have been baptized upon that credible profession of faith. And the Congregationalists, the Presbyterians, had a different answer to that question because they had a different understanding of this distinction between positive law and natural law. I'll close there. Uh, I think that's a, a, a fitting place to stop. Um, the, the, those covenantal issues will come up later, and we'll flesh those out in more detail there. We have already have in, in a previous series. Um, if you want a recommendation for further reading on that subject, I, I, I highly commend Sam Renahan's book, The Mystery of Christ. Uh, he does a really good job of working through this distinction between positive law and natural law, and then the implications of that on our understanding of the various covenants and the progression of the covenants from um, from Noah, or from Adam, to Noah, to Abraham, to Moses, to David, and so on. Any questions about positive law, natural law? Emerson? Mm-hmm. I probably won't remember either, though. Yes. Yes. <clears throat> yeah, in fact, in the... the paragraph that I read earlier on chapter, nine, chapter 19, it, it explicitly mentions, doesn't mention that commandment in isolation, but it does, yeah, the, the paragraph 2, the same law that was first written in the heart of man, so that's the moral law, continued to be a perfect rule of righteousness after the fall and was delivered by God upon Mount Sinai in ten commandments and written in two tables, the first four, the, first, the four first containing our duties toward God, and the other six our duty to man. So that would include the Sabbath as a moral law. Now, certainly there were ceremonial aspects of the fourth commandment that were abrogated, just as there were ceremonial aspects of the first commandment. You are to worship God and him only, and to worship him according to the way that he has described. But we're, we no longer worship him by means of, of sacrifices, for example. And so with the fourth commandment, originally the people were, get, were commanded to gather on the sixth day of the week. That was a ceremonial part of the moral commandment to worship, at one in seven. And now under the new covenant, that ceremonial day has changed. So there is a, a new positive law to worship on the first day of the week rather than on the sixth. Matthew?
You like those questions 10 minutes before we're, we're supposed to be somewhere else, don't you? Um, and and I, I'm, I'm, I'm not dodging the question, and I'm not being, I don't want to just tongue-in-cheek, because it, it, it it's, it's much more involved than I can probably give in just a couple, couple minutes. Uh, oh, I'm sure. It, it's, it's, it, it's, a, it's a hot topic in, in a lot of ways. And so the real question becomes whether or not it is the, the, the just duty of the civil authorities to enforce the first table of the law. Or is it the duty of the civil magistrate only to enforce the second table of the law? Um, the not unanimous, but the preponderance of, of witness from Reformed Baptist history has been that the civil authority's job is to enforce the second table of the law. As, as to the New Testament witness, we, we have to look at how the apostles um, understood their own relationship to the civil authorities with respect to those things. And I think we can look at it negatively in the sense that when the civil authorities had it wrong, for example, they forbid Peter from preaching the name of Christ. And Peter said, we, we must obey God rather than men. I think there's a recognition that that was in the ecclesiastical sphere. That was a sphere given to the apostles and to the church of Jesus Christ to deal with those matters, not the civil authority. But there was never any conflict with respect to the bottom tribunal. So I'll, that's probably where I should leave that for now. Get myself in more trouble than usual. Anything else? Well, let's, let's pray and take a short recess. We'll worship. Oh, actually, less than 10 minutes. Father, we are thankful for your word. Uh, we pray that you will give us your spirit that we can understand uh, these important but sometimes complex matters. Help us to understand the, the glory of your, the works of your law written on the heart of every man. Help us to think carefully about the implications of that with respect to our own households, uh, the raising of our children, our, our eagerness to bear testimony to the work of Christ to our neighbors. We want to be able to have these categories in our minds clear and help us to think carefully about what our neighbors are obliged to do under the moral law and how we can offer the hope of Christ to those who are transgressors of it. We pray for the Spirit to comfort us and encourage us and, and urge us on to greater faithfulness and obedience to your word as, as you've made yourself known to us. Help us to, to give our attention to those positive laws that you've given to us, especially with respect to worship, that we would worship you freely and rightly in a way that's pleasing unto you. We ask this in Christ. Amen.